You know, before we gather together next week, uh, we will have celebrated Christmas. Families will gather, feasts will be eaten, games will be played, puzzles will be assembled, gifts will be exchanged, and the birth of the Lord Jesus will be remembered and celebrated. But, to be clear, celebrating Christ's birth on that particular date, we do that not because we know He was born on that particular date. In fact, it's quite unlikely that He was born on that particular date. Celebrating on December 25th is something that actually came about in the late 3rd century. There were a couple of pagan festivals on that day meant to honor the sun, and it is thought that, that, that the establishment of celebrating the birth of Christ on that day was meant to counteract that paganism. Uh, Augustine, who I don't know if he wrote this, uh, sources differ, but he's credited with saying, we hold this day, December 25th, holy, not like the pagans because of the birth of the Son, but because of Him who made it. So, even the fact that we do celebrate, we do remember, we do have this season year by year, even though it's not commanded and it's not about a particular day, it is good for us to celebrate the awesome reality of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, to remember that God wrapped our injured flesh around Him and came and was born. And actually, to think on that incarnation, we usually uh, look to one of the Gospels, don't we? To Matthew chapter 1, which we read at the beginning of the service, or to Luke chapter 2, uh, probably your Advent readings did not begin uh, with Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Uh, and yet it is to a letter that contains those words that we turn this morning, not to Galatians 3, but to Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. And here, in the midst of a whole letter which is meant to argue, which is meant to call churches back to the true gospel, that we are justified not by works of the law, but by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in these two verses we get a snapshot of Paul's account of the coming of Christ. We don't get the story of the incarnation of Christmas here, we get, but we do get the providence of it, and the person of it, and the purpose of it. Let's read it together. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle Paul. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray together. Father, we now look to your word with open ears and open hearts, asking you by your spirit to teach us that the words spoken would be true 
and all of us who are listening would embrace and love that truth. Show us Christ this morning, Lord, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, we just see three things here. The providence of the incarnation, the person of the incarnation, and the purpose of it. Three very straightforward things. First is the providence of the incarnation. Now, providence may or may not be a word you know, and even if you've heard it quite often because you've been in church for a while, maybe you don't understand it. Well, the whole notion of God's providence is related to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that He has absolute power and absolute control over absolutely everything at absolutely all times. All right? It is within Him. That power, that control is in God. It is His. It belongs to Him, and it belongs to no one else. It only takes a little while of living to realize I'm not in control of what's going on here, right? Where it feels like the inmates are running the asylum. And yet, things are not left to chance. The power to control doesn't lie in us. It lies in God. And providence is, as it were, God's sovereignty in action. It is God's absolute power and absolute control at work in the world, in every event. So, in big events, like the moment when you meet the person you are going to marry, or the moment that you receive that particular diagnosis, or that day when you escaped that fatal car crash with no harm done to you. the big events of life, but also the small events of life, like what color were the traffic lights on the way to church this morning, like the number of snowflakes that will fall. Farmer's Almanac doesn't have the corner on that, you know that? It's part of the providence of God over the little things, the, the, the hairs of your head, the rate at which they change colors and the rate at which they flee and go off to some other place. All the big events of life, all the small events of life, all operate according to the providence of God. God's sovereign and power, God's sovereign power and control at work in every event of human history in order to accomplish His purposes. And providence is what we find in this first phrase in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come. There is a particular time that had to come. Now, how do we know that this points to God's providence and not just uh, Paul's fancy way of saying, uh, you know, there was a time when Christ came? Well, if you look back, we're going to start reading at verse 1. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Pay attention to verse 2. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. You see, in that culture, a child 
did not run free and make any decision it wanted to, you know, that child wanted to, that he or she wanted to, and the parent simply accommodated said decisions. What happened is one of the members of the household was appointed as a guardian over that child, and that guardian was to keep that child in line, and that guardian was to discipline that child, and that guardian was to do that until the date set by the father when he would be released from that guardianship. Now, back at the end of chapter 3, which we won't go to, you'll find there in verse, chapter 3, verse 24, that Paul says that the law is our guardian. The law is the one whose controls are on us. The law is the one who disciplines us. That conviction, that guilt that you feel, that is the power of the law setting in, saying you are guilty. And in historical terms, we are under that law until Christ comes. And then even experientially, we're under that law until Christ comes to us, until he saves us. But this is the picture that we have in our mind. Picture a small child and the guardian and picture the dad. Dad knows his son. Dad knows how this thing works. And so dad puts the date in his calendar. This is when he's going to be released. He sets a reminder in his iPhone. This is the date when he's going to be released. It's in the wisdom of the father to set the date so that all things work to that date. Now, unlike an earthly father, God doesn't make plans and then hope they work out. Those, those of us fathers who have planned vacations, we know how that goes. But God doesn't do that. God makes plans and then he makes it work out. He turns the pages of human history. He moved things forward. As the wisdom of the Father determined the day when everything would change for that child, so God the Father himself determined the day when everything would change in Jesus Christ, when he would come. You see, Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything. You know that passage well. If not from the Bible, from 70s music, right? There's a time to born and a time to die and a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to dance. And at the end of this long list in Ecclesiastes 3.11, we read that he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Time and history are in the hands of God himself. God rules over the minutes. God says he's going to raise up Cyrus to release his people from exile. And then he calls Cyrus my servant, even though Cyrus doesn't pay a lick of attention to God. Why? Because God rules human history. And God moved history to this point. The fullness of time arrives at the precise moment that God wills it to arrive. From the moment that God created time, morning and evening, day and night, the Creator's clock was ticking forward to this moment. The birth of Jesus was on His calendar before the birth of creation. Providence. And it's good for us to meditate on providence. 
Not just with regard to the coming of Christ, but with regard to our own lives. It's good to be reminded that no matter what comes in life, it's because God's absolute power and absolute control are at work accomplishing His purposes. His purposes of love and grace and growth and Christ-likeness and His glory. And that comforts us. It gives us joy in the hardest days. It gives us peace in the most tumultuous days. Because no matter what the circumstances are, life is not spinning out of control. And life is not meaningless. This event is not meaningless. Haven't you, haven't you heard that before? That's how tragedies are often described, right? Senseless tragedies. Well, certainly from a human point of view, they're senseless. But in the end, God will make it all make sense. God's providence is at work even when we can't make sense of it. And we can trust Him. And the providence of God in bringing forth the Son at a particular date in human history, a date by which later, as you know this, all of time would be divided before Christ and Anno Domini in the day of our Lord, in the year of our Lord, sorry. Everything divided there. This was the moment. But then we move on from the providence of the incarnation to the person of the incarnation. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Now, obviously, Paul is talking about Jesus here, but it's interesting. He gives us, he gives us so much information in such a short period of time here. He gives us a basic outline for understanding understanding who Jesus is, what He is like. So that if you're here this morning and you know nothing of Jesus, these little phrases, these three little phrases, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, these give you a basic outline of where you can start in understanding who Jesus is. And if you're in a conversation with a friend, an unbelieving friend, and you want to talk to him or her about who Jesus is. These three phrases give you little hooks on which to hang your conversation. Tells us three things. That Jesus is God. That Jesus is man. And it points to the fact that Jesus is righteous. So Jesus is God. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. It's interesting, before Jesus is born, before Bethlehem, before uh, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Spirit comes on Mary and she conceives. Do you know what happened before then? God sent. God sent. But how can that be? How can it be that one who hasn't been born yet, who hasn't even been conceived in time, is sent? You see, the sending of the Son through His birth into the world means that the Son existed before His birth. 
My boys must be with me before I can send them off to the store. Now that's unique among all of us who are born. Surely God had planned to knit us together in our mother's womb, planned our birth, planned us. But before we were born, we did not exist as living and active beings. We came into existence, you see. Jesus did not. We were created. Jesus was not. When Jesus prays at the end of his life, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There is a huge biblical idea packed into these five little words. Is it five? God sent forth his son. Yes, five little words. Such small words, but such huge, mind-blowing truth. Jesus existed before he was born. Don't lose sight of that. This baby, in the, this gentle and lowly baby in the manger doesn't have his origin there. He doesn't actually have an origin at all. He didn't become the Son of God at his birth. He didn't become the Son of God at his baptism. He didn't become the Son of God at the, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He didn't become the Son of God at his resurrection and, asc and ascension. He didn't become the Son of God even at creation. He has been and always will be God. Jesus was God from eternity past. He is God now, and he will be God forever. So you see, when God sent forth his son, it was a sending of condescension. Jesus lowered himself. He emptied himself. He had to. Why? Because he's God. Colossians 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Philippians 2 says that Jesus was in the form of God, meaning he is, Jesus is profoundly and genuinely and truly and fully God. So you see, when Paul writes, God sent forth his Son... Don't make a mistake here. Don't think that God sent someone other than God to save the world. When Paul writes God sent forth his son, what he means to say is the father sent the son. God broke into space and time in the person of the son from ruling over it to being confined in it. To breathe, to watch the sun come up and to go down, to live one day after the other, to learn to walk and to learn to eat, and to learn the word when he went to synagogue, to learn to pray to Yahweh. It 
was, it was of necessity a condescension on the part of God for Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. Now, that leads us straight into the next thing, which is that Jesus is man. Jesus is man. And Paul says as much in three words. Isn't that wonderful? Whole books have been written about the humanity of Jesus, right? Paul sums it up in three words, which is unlike Paul because Paul is, you know, he's a preacher. He tends to go on and on. But here he is summing it up in three words, born of woman. Now, these words do not so much point to the virgin birth of Jesus, as important and crucial as that is. It points to the human birth of Jesus, that he was born of woman. Timothy George put it well when he wrote, while Jesus' conception was supernatural, his birth was perfectly normal, complete with a dingy manger, soiled swaddling cloths, and other unsanitary conditions attending the birth of a poor peasant in ancient Palestine. He was born of woman. Jesus is truly human, and this is absolutely crucial. I mean, John will say that every spirit that's from God recognizes that Jesus has come in the flesh. And if they deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, this is Antichrist. But also this is crucial because if Jesus is not truly human, then God is found to be untrustworthy in his promises. God's character is on the line in Jesus' humanity. Because God had promised that the Savior of the world would be a human being from the very beginning when he spoke these words to Satan, the serpent, after the fall of man. Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is often called the proto-evangelion, the first good news, the first gospel, this promise. But, but God promises that it's the offspring of the woman, a human being, a man, will accomplish this. He will come and crush the serpent's head. Evil will be dealt with. Satan's deceptive ways will come to an end. And the sin that entered the world through Satan's deception will be conquered all through one who is born of woman. Now, those of you who have held your little baby in, in the delivery room and you, or maybe even before then, you begin to imagine what their life will be like, what all they will accomplish, what they could accomplish, what they might accomplish, all of these things. None of, none, none of, our, none of the times that I was in the hospital with our children did I think, this kid's going to save the world. And yet God says at the beginning, it's, it's, one, it's one that you're going to hold in the delivery room. 
It's one that's going to come in the way that every other human being will come. Can you imagine then when Eve has Cain? This, you said born of woman, God. This could be the one. But Cain proves decisively that he was not the one. He would not crush the serpent's head. He would be crushed by sin itself. And that would be the story in every delivery room afterwards until a manger in Bethlehem. Born of woman. I couldn't help. Uh, we, Susan and I had dinner with a couple of the pastors over at Heather Hills and their wives on Monday night. Um, was that really just this past Monday? Okay, that's good. It was on a Monday night. How about that? And, and we sat there, and, and suddenly our conversation, this song came to mind by Chris Rice called Welcome to Our World. And as I prepared for this morning, the words of that song about just the reality of the humanity of this baby, just, they just swirled in my mind. He sings, Fragile Finger sent to heal us. Tender brow prepared for thorns. Tiny heart whose blood will save us. Unto us is born. Jesus is a man. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. And Jesus is righteous. Look at, keep going. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Now, the law was given especially to the Jews, and Jesus is a Jew. He is circumcised on the eighth day. He grows up uh, going to synagogue, all of it. And if you remember back, uh, the Jews are brought out of Egypt by the mighty hand and outstretched arm of God himself. And then at Mount Sinai, they are given his law. And before they are given his law, God says... You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, I've brought you out and you are mine. And when God gives them the law, the law is going to lay out for them what it means to be gods, to live as gods, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, to live as God's people. And do you know what Israel did with that law? They shattered it. They shattered it before it even made it down the mountain. They were already making false images for themselves and worshiping it. And then generation after generation, Jews are born under the law. And they are crushed by it. They will not be a kingdom of priests. They will not be a holy nation. They will not live as God's people. The story of Israel in the Old Testament, in one sense, is a story of abject moral failure. But we Gentiles aren't off the hook. Because while God's law is given to the Jews, His Moral demands, his standards of holiness are universal. So that 
Romans 3 will say, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Why? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. Not just the Jews, the whole world. The law speaks and the whole world is held accountable to God. You see, the law speaks to the Jew first, but the echoes of that speaking go all the way throughout the entire world so that all of our mouths are shut, so that there's no way that we can justify ourselves. We can't explain our lives any other way except to say what the law says about us, which is that we are guilty. All of us. But then there's Jesus. In, in one sense, he's like every other Jew, right? And yet, he's unlike every other Jew. In one sense, he's like every other human being. But he's unlike anyone else. Jesus is born under the law, but he's not crushed by it. He upholds it. He keeps it. He fulfills it. We saw that a few weeks ago, didn't we, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You see, Jesus is what Israel could never be. Jesus is what no human being could ever be. Righteous. Jesus is God. God sent forth His Son. Jesus is man, born of woman. Jesus is righteous, born under the law. And these three characteristics uniquely qualify him to be the Savior of the world. As one who is both God and man, he qualifies as the only one who can be mediator between God and man. As the one who is righteous, his death on the cross for us is the spotless substitutionary sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath against sin so that we are reconciled to God. He is God, He is man, and He is righteous. That is the person of the Incarnation. That's a good starting place in getting to know Jesus. But then the third thing is the purpose of the incarnation, which is, Paul says, two grand purposes, two sides of the same coin as it were. It's here in verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Redemption and adoption. Two sides of the same coin. Christ came first for redemption. Christ came to redeem. You see, not only are we guilty under the law, sinners before God in need of forgiveness, but we are actually slaves of that sin. We wear the slave's chain under sin's dominion. Uh, it calls to mind Jacob Marley in a, in a Christmas carol. Do you remember when he first shows up? I mean, I have the George C. Scott like burned into my brain. It showed every year, and I watched it every year. Uh, and, and then for decades, it was like exile. I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, but I found it a couple of years ago, and I realized it wasn't as scary as it was the first time I watched it. But still, 
Here's Jacob Marley showing up, and he tells Ebenezer Scrooge this about his chain. He said, I made it link by link, yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Our pro- the enemy is us. Mankind has rebelled against God. We enslaved ourselves to sin by rebelling against God. Sin is our master. So that sin says, do that. You know what I said? Right on it. Go there. Be there in a minute. Say this as loud as I can. Think that. I'll never stop. Because we can't get out from under sin's thumb. We can't loosen the chain. We can't lay it aside. We can't escape. But God sent Jesus Christ to buy our freedom. You see, this redeem is an economic word. A slave's freedom could be purchased, and the blood of Jesus purchased our freedom. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of of sins so that on the cross the chains of our sin weighed no longer ourselves down but weighed Christ down and crushed him and the wrath of God crushed him so that we could be free we sing it sometimes don't we now my debt is paid it is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilt. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the sun sets free, oh, is free indeed. So that the heavenly beings in Revelation 5 says, Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, to, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. He came to ransom. He came to redeem so that we are free, but we're not free from sin to just run right back into sin. Here's the deal. We are set free from the guilt of obeying sin as masters so that we can enter the joy of obeying God as master. You will find no more gracious and loving and wonderful and good master than God himself. So that no longer when, if you read Romans 6, starting in around verse 12 or 11 and onward, So that no longer when sin calls for you to come, do you come. Because you know the guilt, you know the shame, you know the condemnation. But when God calls you to come, you say like Samuel, here am I, Lord. When you speak in your word, here am I, Lord. 
No matter what it is you say, here am I, Lord. No matter what change it is that you call for, here am I, Lord. No matter what it is you call me to do, here am I, Lord. Redemption. We are bought out of slavery to sin. So that, 1 Corinthians 6 says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We've been redeemed. We belong to God, which is actually the second part of what Paul says. Redemption and then adoption. Look at it. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The so that means that the adoption cannot happen without the redemption. We are not all children of God in the way that most people talk about all of us being children of God. If all we mean by we're all children of God is that we were all created by Him and He rules over us, okay, but we're not all children of God in the sense that we all belong to His family. Because of that, so that. Those two words negate that whole thought process. To redeem so that we might receive adoption. You see, sin makes us orphans, doesn't it? We have no place to lay our heads. We have no parental arms to be wrapped in and loved by. We have no place to call home. We belong nowhere. But God ordained from eternity past, Ephesians 1.5, He predestined us for adoption as sons, to Himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. And as we saw in Providence, having planned, God makes it come about. So what did He do? He sent forth His Son to bring us home. Anyone uh, who's adopted or had walked with friends who've adopted, particularly internationally, will know that. You make the plan, and then you go. And unlike uh, governments, which can delay and throw off and completely abort plans that we may have, God's plans never get aborted. He planned, and He sent, and in Christ, He's brought us home so that John writes... See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And as I said, this redemption and adoption are two sides of the same coin. You see, in the, in the world in which Paul lived and wrote, a wealthy man could actually purchase the freedom of a young boy who was a slave in order to make him his son. He redeemed him to adopt him. And this is what God has done for us, friends. Redeemed us out of slavery and into his family. Isn't that wonderful? From slaves to son. We have no other hope and we have no other home except with him. This is why when the angels show up to the shepherds who are keeping their flocks by night, by the way, this is why what they say, the kind of news they have is good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. It is the good news of the great joy of redemption. It is the good news of the great joy of adoption for all the people. All who would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus 
find this forgiveness, find this freedom, and find that they belong to a family that can never be torn apart. You see, that's the thing about temporal families. They can be torn apart. But the family into which we are adopted in Christ is forever. So you see that all, good news of great joy for all the people, that all includes you. It includes you if you will turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Will you? But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray together. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we bow before you thankful for these words. Thankful for your providence over all of human history, not only to move history to the birth of Christ, but that you are providentially reigning over all of the events of our lives and we can trust you and you will providentially reign over all of human history until it comes to your desired end. We are thankful for the one, the word who took on flesh, the person of the incarnation, our Lord Jesus Christ, both God and man and the only righteous one who was tested in every way as we are and yet without sin, who was born under the law but was not crushed by it but kept it. And we thank you that this person came with the purpose to redeem us so that you might adopt us, that we have been set free from sin. Oh God, help us to live as those set free from sin. Christ came to redeem us and to adopt us. Help us to live as those who belong to you, who know you as our Father, Christ as our elder brother, heaven as our home. And I pray for those who are here. We pray that you, by your grace, would cause us to rejoice in these truths during this season and all year round. And I pray for those who don't know Christ. Would you stir in their heart by your spirit a desire to know you, to turn from their sin, to know they need your forgiveness, they need your grace, they need your love. That your redemption and adoption is for all who will trust in you. We thank you for these words, Lord. Help us to live accordingly for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray in his name. Amen.